Work is always changing, our brains are overtaxed, and what we all crave is a bright, clean idea that cuts through all the clutter, that helps us see what we might have been missing about our life, our work, our purpose. A signal that emerges spontaneously out of what previously seemed to be noise. People need to be proactive about having an epiphany, right? So opening themselves up to the possibility and then looking at the world through a fresh lens. Welcome to The Index, a podcast about economics, psychology, and the hidden business of everything from Rice University's Jones Graduate School of Business. I'm your host, Saul Elbine, and today we're going to talk about epiphanies, what they are, why they come, and how to help foster them. And as we're going to see, epiphanies often seem to have a life of their own, but there are a lot of things you can do to help prepare the ground to grow them. Our guide to this strange and alchemic process is Eric Dane, who studies cognition and creativity in the workplace. And with me in the studio is Tim Taliaferro, Texas Monthly's chief innovation officer, who had the bright idea to catch him during Austin's annual creativity festival to talk about epiphany. Tim, it's good to have you here. Have you had any good ideas since that conversation at South by Southwest? I've had some good ideas, I think, but nothing that would rise to the level of an epiphany, as Eric Dane would explain it. So Professor Dane studies epiphany, which is a really striking word. I mean, in literature, it has almost a religious context. In ancient civilizations, it was used to describe the manifestation of a god to a human. For Christians, epiphany is the holiday that commemorates when Jesus made his divine nature known. So what does this word mean in a business context? How is it different from just being a good idea? Well, obviously he means it in a secular way. But, you know, in our conversation, there was something a little spooky about it. It's more than just a cool idea, and they're unpredictable. Professor Dane, welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, I think we should start by just defining what do you mean when you say a workplace epiphany? Sure. Yeah, so I have this uh, emerging research stream on epiphanies, and these are personal epiphanies that I'm studying. And so these are insights or aha moments that people have had about themselves, okay, in terms of who they are um, and where they're going in work or in life. And uh, so it is sort of a eureka moment, but um, it's one that goes back to our identity, our self-concept. So business obviously thrives on ideas, and some of them rise to the level of insights where we see a market niche as a way to solve a creative problem or to build a marketing campaign, but these are different from that. Yeah, this is when something clicks in a big way, and it, and it causes you to reconsider not just your work, but who you are in relation to this idea and to work. And these happen, as we know, at sort of unexpected circumstances, right? You're going for a drive, you're in the shower, you're going for a run, and lo and behold, the aha jumps out at you. So what does that actually look like in practice? Well, it can be really powerful. It can create these sudden lessons that really stick with people. And did he have any examples of that? Yeah, actually, he has a bunch of them, but I'll, I'll give you a couple, uh, a professional one and a personal one. The first one is he relays a story about a teacher who's applying to MBA programs, and he wants to become you know, a business manager uh, but then in the application, they ask him about management experience. And at first, he's really bummed because he's like, well, you know, I don't have any proper management experience in the corporate world. I've never been a manager. I'm a teacher. And then for whatever reason, just sort of through the act of looking at the application, thinking about it, sort of self-reflection, it dawned on him that he actually had reams of managerial experience in the sense that he could reframe the very nature of his job as a teacher 
as the job of a manager. In fact, he started to think of himself not just as an educator, but somebody who, on a day-to-day -day basis, was managing many, many people um, in the classroom. And as we know, that's actually a very demanding managerial um, setting to work within. And he said this immediately bolstered his confidence. And not only did it give him confidence as he applied and, and embarked on the MBA journey, but he kind of, from that point forward, thought of himself as a manager, whereas he never had uh, in the past. Right, so I thought that was a revealing one, sort of an inspiring one. I mean, if you can keep a classroom full of high schoolers on task, then the corporate world has got to be cake. So what about the personal example? This one is interesting because on one level it's really small, but it changed his life. So Eric is really competitive, and he was really competitive growing up. So one day he's visiting family, and they're all out walking, and he's tossing a football up and down, and he proposes, hey, let's make a game. This was a kick, pass, and punt competition, I think, right? And so, of course, I kind of recruited everyone around me to participate in this thing. And um, for some reason, my brother, who was in uh, junior high at the time, he refused to play. He said, I'm not gonna participate in this. To him, for whatever reason, it seemed foolish. So I just kind of discounted that and said, all right, on with the competition. You know, My brother sits out, so be it. And for some reason, later that day, it dawned on me that he had done something that became quite remarkable in my eyes. And it, what he had done, either by intentionally or not, he had shown me that you don't really need to be that competitive about stuff, especially around family members. And so that created a big imprint on me. And, and honestly, since that day, and I wouldn't say I'm not competitive at all, but I, I try not to create sort of these artificial competitions. You know, but this is something that's so remarkable to me about epiphanies is that you know, we, we trend towards stability in life in terms of our attitudes and our beliefs, and we become more sort of entrenched in who we are and what career we're doing and what we believe to be about, true about the world. But at these sort of unpredictable, sudden moments, some people do experience this sort of untethering of uh, these things that are binding them toward a rigid view of self, and they create new meaning in terms of who they are and where they're going. It's always struck me as quite, a, quite an amazing thing. So how does somebody get into studying something like that? How do you study something so intangible? I asked him that. He actually got started because he wasn't sure epiphanies even exist. So this is kind of like an academic looking for Bigfoot. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Um, you know, this happens a lot in academia where you try to measure something that, that might not at first be measurable. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's common in Hollywood, you know, these moments that seem to be light bulb moments that are dramatized. And he wanted to just figure out, does that really happen? Um, and is this a normal experience? And so he surveys 500 people. And what does he find? Well, about half of them reported having had epiphanies. So he homes in on about 22 of them for in-depth interviews. And it's kind of a fascinating thing to push people in this question because the epiphany happens in our head, but it's often tough to see. As we know, it's hard to see what happens in our head sometimes, right? And so how do we make sense out of something that's happening kind of mysteriously or non-consciously in a certain way? So this is something sort of wonderfully esoteric for a business professor, and it's really exciting. You find out that this thing that you thought was this mystic or metaphysical concept actually happens to people kind of a lot. So why was that even relevant to a business professor in the first place? Take us back. Well, remember, he studies, he's a business professor who studies cognition and how we think and how we come up with ideas. Uh, 
But his answer to that question made it really common sense that it represented a new model of problem solving. All businesses have problems to solve, and all businesses compete with other businesses in the same space. So if you're a business that can foster better problem solving, you have a competitive advantage in the marketplace. So it is actually important to the bottom line that a company be good at solving problems. And so this is legit research for a business professor to be engaged in. How do good companies do this? So if you can solve problems in this whole new way that redefines your purpose, that could be worth a lot of money. Yeah, and he starts to find some really interesting characteristics of how people describe their experiences. Here's a couple of the, I think, surprising uh, sort of juicy takeaways from the research that I mentioned. One would be that people are reluctant to take credit for their own epiphanies, interestingly enough. So they possess their epiphanies and they drive their choices that they make moving forward in life. Um, but for whatever reason, they're more drawn to attribute their epiphanies to serendipitous circumstances. So who was I around? What context was I in? Um, they, they tend to say, okay, it was actually my colleague or a family member that gave this to me, even though nobody was attempting to impart an epiphany onto them. So this kind of runs in the face of this, you know, ages old wisdom we have in psychology about how people take credit for things that have gone well for themselves, right? So epiphanies present this interesting counterpoint to the self-serving bias. Um, another really interesting thing that I got from the studies is this idea of being open or being ready for an epiphany to happen. So the one way people did credit themselves is they said, you know what, looking back, a part of me opened myself to the possibility of experiencing an epiphany. And so by implication, that means that some people, and some people said this, like I was not ready to have an epiphany at earlier times in my life, or maybe you know, I wouldn't have one, but maybe somebody else would be ready to have one. So it really is like the epiphany comes to you, not like you have it, more like you have it over. Yeah, and he said it opens up a new window into problem solving. You know, generally, we talk about problems as how hard they are. And with a hard problem, you have to learn more, work harder, hire a coach or something. But here, if you let it, the problem might just solve itself. It's kind of intriguing to think about the possibility that when we solve problems, you know, when we're struggling to solve a problem, in some cases, it might be that we're getting in our own way. Maybe we're not ready for a solution to arise. Um, I think that's true in the case of epiphanies, and it could be true for a number of work problems for that matter. I mean, think about it. On the one hand, you might be a hero if you, if you solve a challenging work-related problem. On the other hand, are you ready for the promotion that would come with it? Are you ready for the publicity that would come with it? Yeah, or there's a problem. If you solve a problem, they're going to give you other problems. You might, yeah, you might spawn a host of other problems. This guy solves problems. With. That's right. Let's load him up. He solves and creates problems. That's right. So you become the problem solver, and do you want that to be part of your identity? Yeah. 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 You know, I like that idea of mystery or readiness. There's this ancient Greco-Roman notion that ideas kind of have their own identity and they travel around the world looking for a home, for someone tuned in and ready to receive them. And on the one hand, that sounds a bit woo-woo, but also I can say for more than a decade as a writer, that's kind of just how it feels. Like the insight or the epiphany has you rather than the other way around. So the natural question that I imagine all of our listeners would have by now is, great, sign me up. How do I do that? Do I run off and join an ashram? Do I find a mentor? Do I have to go have a sojourn in the mountains? Well, it's not that easy, uh, although I wouldn't count any of those things out. You really can't force epiphanies. That's one thing to maybe stress. Remember that epiphanies almost seem to have a mind of their own. 
Uh, so the one thing that you can do is prepare yourself to have an epiphany, to allow the idea to reach you and you be ready for it. I think there's two types of work that you need to engage in. One would be real self-searching, okay, introspection, maybe with the, in concert with a counselor or a therapist as well. Who am I really, and am I really, really, am I really ready to open myself for the idea of further personal development or change? Okay, so some of the things I'm, I've been mentioning are hinting at that. The other side of readiness that came out through my data is being attuned to your surroundings, um, which is a challenge for many of us today. You know, especially when, we have, when we're sort of bombarded by digital distractions. We know that technology can become addictive and so on and so forth. You know, it, in all likelihood, there's nothing sacred or hallowed about a given conversation or a particular trip or whatever that imparts the epiphany onto you. But unless you're truly mindful in the moment, it's gonna be hard for events or stimuli that you encounter to really open you up, right? So another way to think about it, is, this is something I cover in the mindfulness class that I, that I teach in the MBA program, but how can we think about our surroundings in an entirely different new way, even if we're used to them? You know, so I talk about this concept called the traveler's mind. Yeah, like you go on a trip someplace memorable six months ago, you probably remember it like really vividly, right? You can remember details of that trip. But can you tell me what you did two weeks ago on Tuesday? I could not possibly. So if we can find ways to kind of open our eyes to the sort of otherwise mundane moments, <laughs> you know, if we can find ways to break free from the autopilot that we're living on so much of the time, I do think it increases the chances of epiphanies and really just making better decisions and solving problems more effectively. Well, another area where you study this and you have really interesting results is around uh, daydreaming. Now, daydreaming is another place where Professor Dane has done a lot of work and where there's been a lot of interesting neuroscience coming out lately. Like, the psychologist Daniel Levitin writes in The Organized Mind about how our brains naturally switch between a focused, task-dependent mode and then also a freer associating mode. Yeah, and I asked the question that may be on all of our minds. Oh, what was that? Talk a little bit about that, that there's such a thing as productive daydreaming. Uh, I'm asking for a friend, you understand. <laughs> this, is not, this is not a personal question, this is for others. Yeah, so um, I've been doing research as well on the topic of mind wandering, which is when the mind retreats from our surroundings and ventures off to any number of other destinations, which sounds like it would be problematic, right? I mean, no manager is gonna tell their employees, you know, let your mind wander when I'm talking to you, or don't pay attention <laughs> to this meeting, right? Um, it turns out, though, that some types of mind wandering can actually be pretty functional, even from a workplace standpoint. Mm -hmm. And so I draw a, a thin but notable distinction between the term mind wandering and daydreaming in that daydreaming is a, cr a form of creative cognition. When you're thinking about something very imaginative as your mind wanders, and as it turns out, what can happen is that you know, your mind might return to an unsolved business-related challenge or problem as it wanders and start playing around with possibilities. And that's when a lot of creative ideas actually bubble up. So how much time are we spending in this mind-wandering state? He said, if you can believe this, a third to a half of our waking hours. Right, so again, that means that my mind has retreated from my environment. It's retreated from the task at hand and the whole s surroundings. And I'm thinking about any number of other thoughts. Um, it could be quite commonplace thoughts, like items on my to-do list. It could be memories of any number of things I've experienced in my life. It could be thoughts about various possible future that might come into being. 
Or it could, again, it could be something highly imaginative, or in some cases downright bizarre, right? The mind ventures off to all sorts of destinations. Um, so if you've tuned out by this point, I don't hold it against you. I think it's just the nature of the mind. By the way, a lot of people, you wouldn't believe how many people come up to me and say, I think I have you know, attention deficit disorder, right? I think some people don't appreciate just how normal it is for the mind to jump around that frequently. He says actually you're better off if you're gonna let your mind wander to actually let it wander. Like I'd rather see somebody say, I'm gonna spend I'm gonna spend an hour zoning out, but I'm doing it deliberately. I'm gonna see where mine goes, my mind goes to. I'm gonna think about what that means, what that tells me about myself. Maybe I will envision something creative during that time. Is that the way to do it, you know, as a manager, rather than, you know, just, yeah, just daydream whenever you want or let your mind wander, let's say. Is it better to just sort of try to structure that? In other words, well, like, what do I do if I walk in on an employee and, <laughs> and he or she is, their mind is obviously wandering. Do I just sort of leave them in peace, or should I <laughs> call them back to reality? So again, this flies in the face of conventional wisdom, because it's hard to picture a manager saying that. Um, it, takes, it, it really depends on the type of work, too. Right? I mean, if somebody's doing like air traffic control work, right? I'm not sure we want them just zoning out for an hour. If, so, if the surgeon is there you know, doing surgery, you know, so, so think about the nature of the work here. But if it's more standard knowledge work, office jobs, yeah, I mean, there's evidence suggesting that we don't really need people to at least pretend like they're doing something at all times. Rather, going for a walk might be quite useful. And so let that happen for them. It's great. Is there any correlation between mind wandering and epiphanies, you think? I do think so. Right? And there's sort of an interesting duality or paradox even. Right? So on the one hand, here I am saying it's important to focus on the world around you. On the other hand, if we're talking about sort of this highly imaginative daydreaming type of mind wandering, I do think this is where, I mean, we know that's when some creative ideas come bubble up. So you might look at something closely for a while and then give your mind time to relax and incubate. And lo and behold, the epiphany may arise. So I think both productive mindfulness and productive mind wandering play roles here. Yeah, that's often a tactic that I'll use when I'm writing. I'll sort of stuff my brain with all the things that need to sort themselves out, and then I'll go to the gym. And it is almost surreal how often solutions will present themselves. Well, Saul, it sounds like you're doing this right. <laughs> it sounds like, honestly, it sounds like you're being very intentional and productive with your mind wandering. You know, it's interesting, actually. I got this one from one of the fellow Austinita, a venerable staff writer at The New Yorker, Lawrence Wright. And he writes in one of his interviews that whenever he would get stuck in the interminable drafting process, he would go for a run. And he would always take a notepad because he writes, invariably, he just gets down to the end of his street and all of the ideas start coming to him. And Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize for the research in his famous book, Thinking Fast and Slow, talked about how many of his best ideas with his collaborator, Amos Tversky, happen when they would just be out on these long, slow walks. And he specifies, not too fast, not too slow, just right. So is there something particular in the showering or walking that helps make these things happen? Well, I think what he was driving at there is like there is a Goldilocks kind of scenario where, you know, not too hot, not too cold, just right. And so that's what you're looking for. Yeah, certainly walking or any kind of low cognitive load task. And that's why you hear these classic accounts of like, in the shower it occurred to me, or yeah, when I was driving, right? Um, there's something to those kind of, those maxims, right? Um, in the sense that what's happening is you've gotten away from the thing you were struggling with, but you're not just struggling with something else, right? You've kind of given your mind something to engage with, but you're more relaxed in a way. 
So there, I think there's a ton of value to going for walks during a workday that go beyond even just the physiological benefits. Right. I think Kahneman said the ideal walking speed for idea generation was like 2.5 miles an hour. You're engaged enough not to be bored, your heart's pumping a bit, but not engaged enough that you're now distracted by something else. Right, which brings us to something important. So thinking about walking around the city or having that thought when you're in the shower, what do you not usually have in the shower? So I can think of a number of things, but given the context, I'm going to say my phone. Right, your phone, or for that matter, a notepad. With that said, I do think, and I do see evidence supporting this idea that the mind is probably jumpier now uh, than it has been historically due to the distractions and our inability to kind of manage digital distractions and so forth as effectively as we'd like. I mean, you wouldn't believe, I'm grading papers now, lucky me, and you wouldn't believe how many of the papers in my mindfulness elective address essentially technology addiction. So when I hear this, my first thought is, poor guy, he's at South by Southwest and he's halfway grading papers. But my next thought is, wait a minute, that's how I spent most of my South by Southwest in my early 20s, anxiously checking my phone, thinking about the cooler place I should probably be, or some girl I was worried about, or an article I was supposed to be working on. Ah, the phone. It has great powers, but you really must control it. If half of your attention is stuck on your phone, you're in this thing that he starts to call limbo. I think they become more concerned when we talk about the research and technology addiction and when we do activities that are specifically designed to open people's eyes to the world around them and they start to recognize it's a big world with much to notice within it. I think like with many, you know, I guess bad habits, it's easy to fall into these habits and not be quite as self-aware, especially when everyone else around us is doing the same thing, right? I mean, yeah, it's, exactly. it's easy to justify. Well, I don't have any evidence for it, but I just think, I certainly feel the pull of that, that mm -hmm. it's harder and harder to you know, focus. It's also sort of harder to let your mind wander because the phone will grab you from either of those yes. states. Yeah, it's the state of living in limbo, right? Where we're you know, checking our pocket, something you know, chirp, vibrated, flash, beeped, or whatever, yeah. and we're essentially mindlessly looking you know, maybe responding, and much is being lost in the process of conversation like this. And we all see it, right? We've met, we have many conversations like this where people are kind of buried behind this little screen. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's normative, but whether it's optimal is an entirely separate question. So this is one reason why they say, by the way, that you should keep your phone in another room while you're trying to do focused work. I actually read an article about a guy who kept his in a lockbox. That's a good idea. I'm going to use that. Uh, but yeah, uh, you know, Eric said that tech anxiety was really destructive. There's another paradox. I asked him about anxiety, which I sometimes think about as like the kryptonite to insight. And he said something interesting. There's tech anxiety, but also there's a healthy anxiety. And it can be part of the process if you go with it, that the right amount of anxiety can be something like epiphany fuel. Some people talk about this being like an anxiety-laced society that we're living in right now, perhaps more so than ever. It's a buzzword. It's a popular term with a reason. It, it, I think it could map onto a few of the topics we've, we've talked about, right? On the one hand, an epiphany emerges in response to a pre-existing psychological tension that somebody's been wrestling with, maybe at a dull level or whatever. So that could be an anxiety-provoking tension of some. And the epiphany uh, you know, reconciles or removes that tension. I think the idea of anxiety would, would 
certainly, we know for sure it, it takes us back to this idea of mindfulness, mindful awareness, though. There's so much work right now in both the academic press and the popular press and the value of mindfulness as a tool for stress reduction, anxiety reduction. So the lessons here are do the legwork, fill up your brain, and then step out of the way. Is there anything else? Yes. No pressure. I don't think you can force it, right? I think, for example, some people go on like this world trip and they're gonna go find themselves, right? And they're gonna have all these epiphanies along the way. Personally, I think people act their way into self-understanding. More often they go off and just find it as though it's this big glowing thing, you know, pot of gold or something at the end of the rainbow. I think the work that you do on yourself that builds an epiphany is not just, I need an epiphany. It's, again, exploring much more thoroughly who I am, what I'm trying to get out of you know, life, exploring my weak sides, thinking about my vulnerabilities, understanding how I become better as a human. And in the process, that might sort of open up these pathways which produce epiphanies. So I'm not sure you want to go directly in pursuit of epiphanies, but you do want to spend time in self-reflection. I like that. I have this image of a man in a business suit and a safari hat, vest on top, and he's sitting in a lotus position and he's out hunting epiphanies. Yeah, I like it too. In fact, I think I'll try it, except instead of the lotus position, I'm going to go out on actual safari. In the next episode, an American journalist tries out life hacks brought to this country by recent immigrants and gets a new understanding of what it's like to be from here. They were not welcomed by the colonists. They were considered... uh, uneducated, dangerous, violent, extremely poor, and they were edged out. And they did end up ultimately in Texas, among other places. Tim, thanks again. See you, all. The Index is a production of Rice Business in collaboration with Texas Monthly Studio. I'm Melissa Reese, executive producer. Our show is engineered and produced by Brian Standifer, who also wrote our theme music. Our moderators are Tim Taliaferro and Carlos Sanchez. The Index is written and hosted by Saul Elbine. For more business insights, visit business.rice.edu backslash wisdom.